A word of caution. This episode contains depictions of murder and sexual assault that may be disturbing to listeners. Discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. The high-profile cases of Brittany Drexel, who went missing in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina in 2009, and Zeb Quinn, who disappeared from Asheville, North Carolina in 2000, were both resolved this past summer when perpetrators finally admitted to their involvement. The truth is, we'll never really know what happened in both of these cases, but at least their families received a bit of resolution. In this episode, I'll share segments from the original podcasts as well as provide the updates. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 49, an update on Brittany Drexel and Zeb Quinn. I first shared the story of Brittany Drexel, the teenager from New York who went missing while visiting Myrtle Beach, in Episode 24, South Carolina Cases Featured on Disappeared. Brittany's story reached its final conclusion this past summer and it left many who had been following it quite surprised. Here's the original clip featuring her case. Brittany's case is a little unusual in that she wasn't a resident of South Carolina when she went missing. Rather, she was on a spring break trip in April of 2009 with a group of friends from New York. This is a case that has been featured heavily in both national news media outlets and other true crime podcasts, so I'm just going to try and hit the highlights here. Brittany was a 17-year-old who grew up in the Rochester, New York area with her mother and stepfather, Chad, who had adopted her when she was a young child. Her parents separated the year before Brittany went missing, which hit her particularly hard. In April 2009, she asked her mother, Dawn, if she could travel to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, with her boyfriend and some other friends for spring break. Dawn said no, because she didn't know anything about the group of friends Brittany was wanting to travel with. Her mother's intuition was in high gear, and she also had a feeling something bad would happen to Brittany if she went. It caused a huge fight between the two, and Brittany left to go cool off at a friend's house for a few days. Or at least that's what she told her mother. That day, Brittany instead left for Myrtle Beach without telling her mother. She called home a few days later, and when her mom asked where she was, she said, The beach. Dawn assumed it was at a local beach near Lake Ontario, Shoreline, and didn't press for details. Brittany had been staying with friends at the Bar Harbor Hotel in Myrtle Beach. Her boyfriend had ended up not going on the trip and staying behind to work instead. On the night of April 25th, Brittany left Bar Harbor to go visit another friend who was staying at the Blue Water Resort, about a mile and a half away. According to surveillance footage at the Blue Water Resort, Brittany only stayed there a few minutes. She then left on foot around 9.15 p.m., walking down Ocean Boulevard alone while texting with her boyfriend, John. A traffic camera along the boulevard captured Brittany walking alone, focused on her phone. 
Her boyfriend became alarmed when the text suddenly stopped, and he was unable to reach Brittany. He called her friends in Myrtle Beach to see if they knew what had happened to her, and they reported she had never returned to the hotel room. He finally grew so concerned, he phoned Brittany's mother, Dawn, to let her know Brittany had taken the trip without their permission. The Myrtle Beach police were alerted and they began a search the next morning. In Brittany's hotel room, they found her clothing and all the items except for her cell phone and purse. They talked to the people she had visited at the Blue Water Resort, a 20-year-old nightclub promoter from New York, and some of his friends. When I first heard about Brittany's disappearance, I thought back to my own memories of visiting Myrtle Beach while in high school. Ocean Boulevard is a very congested main road that leads into the main part of what is called the Grand Strand. The high-rise hotels all along that main strip house thousands of visitors each year. And not only that, there are plenty of area residents that drive in for the day. When I saw Brittany's surveillance footage and how petite she was, she weighed around 100 pounds and stood about five feet tall, I knew she would be a prime target for anyone looking to commit a crime of opportunity, especially if she came across a stretch of Ocean Boulevard that wasn't brightly lit and there weren't a lot of people around. Investigators were able to determine that Brittany's cell phone pinged on US 17 near Georgetown, South Carolina, about 60 miles south of Myrtle Beach. The ping stopped abruptly the morning of April 26th, so an intensive search was performed in that area by law enforcement. After that, the case went cold for a couple of years. But in 2016, investigators held a news conference stating they had new information about what may have happened to Brittany. Since Brittany's episode of Disappeared aired, new developments in the case emerged, and the HLN show Real Life Nightmare aired an update last December. In June 2016, a jailhouse informant named Taquan Brown told investigators that he'd seen Brittany at a stash house in McClellanville, South Carolina, which was near the area where her cell phone last pinged before it died. He was there to visit a man named Timothy Deshaun Taylor, and the mobile home was owned by Taylor's father. The girl he thought was Brittany was being sexually assaulted by a group of men, and she had a black eye. He believed Timothy Taylor abducted Brittany with the purpose of selling her to human traffickers, but then panicked over the media coverage of the case. The informant said he was also present a few days later when Brittany attempted to escape her abductors and was shot before being dumped into a murky body of water known to attract alligators. This information is all very disturbing and had to have been very difficult for Brittany's family to hear. The problem was, there was no conclusive evidence corroborating Taquan Brown's story, and Timothy Taylor claimed he didn't even know who Taquan was. Taylor eventually pled guilty for his involvement in an armed robbery of a McDonald's in Mount Pleasant, and was sentenced to three years probation. Meanwhile, the informant, Taquan Brown, is serving a 25-year sentence for involuntary manslaughter in an unrelated case. A search of the property where the alleged stash house was turned up no leads, and in a strange coincidence, the Myrtle Beach Sun News reported it burned down in May of 2019. That same month, members of the FBI also gave a press conference where they released the following information. Of the case, uh, I mean, 
mean, obviously it's been 10 years, and that's why we're meeting here today, and that's why uh, Brittany's mother's in town. Uh, it's been 10 long years, and we understand to a degree the anguish that she's had to endure for these 10 years, her and her family. But I can tell you, um, as an investigative team, we continue to make positive strides in this case. Uh, we continue to receive information from the public and leads and develop additional leads from that information. Um, so that's heartening to see. Um, so again, uh, it's 10 years, we still don't have anybody in custody, which obviously is, is not our goal, um, but we are making positive steps. Uh, everybody's invested in this case, as they would be in any case, kidnapping a, a child, uh, her death, getting any law enforcement officer, any criminal investigator is reluctant to close a case out like that and just shift it aside. Plus, like I said, we're still receiving information about this case that's still taking us places. Uh, so as, as long as we're developing information that we feel is positive, we're going to keep working the case uh, as we have been. And, and I'll tell you, we've been working as diligently today uh, as we did on day one. So I, don't, I haven't seen any of that waiver at all. On May 16th, 2022, the Georgetown County Sheriff's Office held a press conference where they announced they had uncovered the remains of Brittany Drexel in a wooded area on the outskirts of Georgetown County. Dental records confirmed her identity. They announced that Raymond Moody had been charged with murder, kidnapping, and criminal sexual conduct. Her cause of death appeared to be strangulation. Raymond Moody is a known sex offender with a disturbing criminal background. He had served about half of a 40-year sentence beginning in 1983 on convictions for criminal sexual conduct with minors in California. Back in August of 2011, authorities had spent nearly four hours searching a room at the Sunset Lodge in Georgetown County. They had served the lodge with a search warrant so they could look for evidence in Brittany's case. At the time, the police did not share any details as to why they had decided to search that particular location. We now know the room had belonged to Raymond Moody at one point. At this past summer's press conference, Georgetown County Sheriff Carter Weaver had this to say. Where did it happen? How did it happen? And why did it happen? The why may never be known or understood, but today, this task force can confidently and without hesitation answer the rest of those questions along with the who is responsible. According to WCIV, the Georgetown County Sheriff said they had received a major tip in 2011 from a family member, suggesting they take a look into Moody because of his criminal history serving time for raping underage girls. This was why they were searching the motel he had been staying at, and they also interviewed his girlfriend at the time, a woman named Angel Vouse, but they couldn't find any concrete evidence linking him to Brittany's disappearance. The FBI eventually realized their lead about Timothy Taylor wasn't viable, so they started from square one. They looked at cell phone data and determined that Brittany had gone from walking to moving at 55 miles per hour around 9.06 p.m. on April 25, 2009. She arrived in Georgetown by 10 p.m. Looking at video surveillance, they noticed that Moody's Ford Explorer was the only vehicle that passed where Brittany was walking at that time. When they questioned Moody, 
He said he and Angel had been in the car, and they asked Brittany if she wanted to smoke marijuana with them at their camp. After arriving in Georgetown, he said Angel Vouse had left, and this is when Moody sexually assaulted Brittany and strangled her because he knew he would go back to prison if she reported him. He said he lied to his girlfriend about Brittany leaving unharmed. He later went back to the location of where he had left Brittany and buried her body. No one knows for sure if Raymond Moody was lying about any part of this story, but Brittany's mother says her daughter may have simply thought she was accepting a ride up the street to where her hotel was. As if this conclusion to Brittany's case wasn't disturbing enough, I found even more unsettling information when I did a search of Raymond Moody's name in the Myrtle Beach newspaper archives. On June 21, 2004, the Myrtle Beach Sun News published an article titled Sex Offender Causes Stir with Move to Strand. The article was about none other than Raymond Douglas Moody. Some of the residents from the Kensington neighborhood of Georgetown expressed concerns about Moody living with his parents in their home. At the time, he had moved to the area after being released from prison in California. He had registered his name with the sheriff's office and was being electronically monitored by the South Carolina Office of Probation and Parole. The residents were doubly concerned because the Moody home was located near a daycare, an elementary school, and several churches. Moody told the newspaper at the time, They have a bracelet on my ankle and a monitor in the house. The only time that I leave the house is for counseling and to see my parole officer. I just want a chance to live my life. The Georgetown County Assistant Sheriff Carter Weaver told the newspaper, It is our understanding that Moody has met all of his requirements as prescribed by law. The president of the Kensington Community Association at the time said, I can look out the window and look at his house. I know his mama and daddy real well. I've got children. If they did something wrong, I would still have my house open to them. An article that ran a few months later, in September of 2004, said that Moody was no longer classified as a sexual predator, but remained under strict electronic monitoring as a high-risk sexual offender. The article mentioned he had moved from his parents' home in the Kensington community of Georgetown. It explained that Moody could not be classified as a predator because his crimes were committed before 1986. The violent sexual predator law wasn't formed until the mid-1980s, a spokesman for the California Board of Prison Terms told the reporter. The article also noted that Moody was not allowed to live alone and that his parents were required to remain with him if he left the house. It also mentioned he was living in an industrialized area away from other houses, but I couldn't clarify who he was supposed to have been living with at that time. His California prison record noted Moody was convicted of one count of sodomy on a child younger than 14, three counts of rape, two counts of lewd behavior on a child younger than 14, and one count of assault with intent to commit mayhem. After coming across these articles, it was easy to see why the sheriff's department had suspected Moody could be involved in Brittany's disappearance. She went missing in 2009, only five years after Moody had first arrived in the Myrtle Beach area, and his arrival had drawn the fear of area residents so much that newspaper articles were published. Unfortunately, 
it looks like those residents were right to be fearful of what Moody was capable of. Raymond Douglas Moody pleaded guilty to all charges and was convicted to 30 years each concurrently for rape and kidnapping and life for murder. Before we continue, let's take a quick break to talk about our sponsor. I've always enjoyed writing fiction, but I didn't really get serious about it until I was in my 30s. After submitting to the WOW Flash Fiction Contest a few times, I was thrilled when I placed as runner-up with my piece titled In the Depths. WOW still hosts a quarterly writing contest every three months, and I highly recommend entering it. The entry fees are minimal, and you can also purchase a critique to get feedback on your story once the contest concludes. The mission of this contest is to inspire creativity, great writing, and provide well-rewarded recognition to contestants. The contest is open globally. Age is of no matter, and entries must be in English. And the best part is that the contest is open to all genres, from romance to science fiction, to thriller suspense, to literary fiction. The Fall 2022 Flash Fiction Contest with literary agent Savannah Brooks with KT Literary closes on November 30th. To learn more, visit wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. And now, let's get back to the show. Zeb Quinn was an 18-year-old community college student working at Walmart on Hendersonville Road in Asheville when he disappeared in early 2000. According to family and friends, he had been saving up money to buy a car. On the night of January 2nd, 2000, Zeb finished up his shift at Walmart and met fellow co-worker, 21-year-old Jason Owens, to go look at a Mitsubishi Eclipse that was for sale. He was never seen again after that night. From the very beginning, the story Jason Owens told about that night was full of intrigue. The two men were caught on the camera of a local gas station around 9 p.m. buying sodas. You can see them drive away from the store separately, Zeb in his Mazda protege and Jason in his pickup truck. Jason claimed Zeb flashed his lights at him, indicating he needed to pull over at some point during the evening. Zeb then told Jason he had received a page and needed to find a payphone to make a call. This was before the convenience of cell phones. Jason said he waited for Zeb to return from making that call, and that when Zeb did come back, he was driving erratically and actually rear-ended Jason's truck. Zeb promised to pay for any damages, and then drove away without ever looking at the car that was for sale or explaining to Jason what was wrong. In the early morning hours of January 3rd, Jason turned up at a local hospital with head injuries and a broken rib he claimed were related to a separate car crash that happened that night. When investigators later questioned him about Zeb's disappearance, he said the accident happened outside of a local Waffle House, a few miles down the road from where he had last seen Zeb. But police couldn't find any record of an accident reported during that time, and at that location. I haven't been able to find any information on whether or not the police were able to check out Jason's truck for any damages to corroborate the story of these two car accidents. Jason also called Walmart two days after Zeb disappeared, claiming to be Zeb, and stating that he wouldn't be able to make it to work that day. The manager who took the call knew it wasn't Zeb's voice and had the call traced back to a local Volvo plant where Jason happened to work. When police later questioned him about making the call, 
He admitted to it, saying that Zeb had asked him to do it as a favor. Zeb's mom reported him missing to the police department on January 4th, and Jason stopped cooperating with the police investigation shortly after that. The case continued to baffle investigators and Zeb's family. On January 16th, Zeb's Mazda protege turned up in the parking lot of a local barbecue restaurant. Inside was a local key card from a hotel, a live Labrador puppy, some empty drink bottles, and a jacket that did not belong to Zeb. Someone had also drawn a pair of lips on the back windshield, along with two exclamation points in lipstick. The location where the car was found was also very close to the hospital where Zeb's grandmother, mother, and sister all worked as nurses, leaving investigators to wonder if it was left in that location on purpose so the family would see it. As for the puppy left inside of the car, one of the investigators eventually adopted it. The episode of Disappeared that featured Zeb's case presented several different odd occurrences that happened around the time Zeb went missing. First of all, Zeb had developed a friendship with a young woman who also had a toddler, and the young woman's boyfriend didn't like the fact that she was spending time with Zeb and talking on the phone with him frequently. Investigators questioned the young woman and her boyfriend to see if they had any information about Zeb's whereabouts, but nothing turned up from that line of questioning. They also traced the page that Zeb got the night he was last seen with Jason. Interestingly enough, the call came from the home of Zeb's paternal aunt. However, she claimed to be having dinner with friends elsewhere during the time the page was made from her home. His aunt later filed a police report claiming her home had been burglarized while she was at that dinner. After the initial investigation, Zeb's case went cold. Over the years, Jason Owens had numerous run-ins with law enforcement, from being charged with possession of stolen goods to intent to distribute prescription drugs, and also being involved in a police chase in 2007 while driving with a revoked license. To Zeb's loved ones, it seemed the mystery of his disappearance would never be solved. That is, until a couple with ties to Hollywood also went missing in North Carolina. In 2015, JT and Christy Codd were happily settled into Leicester, North Carolina, a rural suburb of Asheville. Having both been involved in the TV and film industry, the married couple had moved to North Carolina for a more low-key lifestyle, traveling when they had to for their respective jobs. They were also expecting their first child. 45-year-old JT worked as a grip in the film industry, while 38-year-old Christy was a celebrity chef and caterer. Back in 2012, she was even a contestant on the Food Network show, Food Network Star. Family members became concerned in March of 2015 when they couldn't reach Christy or JT by phone. Christy was supposed to travel to Mississippi for a catering job and never arrived. Christy's father called one of their neighbors to stop by their house and check in on the couple. When the neighbor arrived, she found a distressing sight. The couple's dogs had been left in the house unattended for days, leaving a horrible mess. The neighbor knew Christy wouldn't have left her dogs unsupervised. The neighbor who checked on the dogs was Cecilia Owens, who was none other than the aunt of Jason Owens, who owned a construction business and had done some odd jobs for the Cods after they moved to Leicester. 
The sheriff's department was immediately dispatched to the scene, and once they heard Jason's name, suspicions were raised. Investigators also received information that a man had been acting suspiciously and disposing of items in a dumpster in nearby Candler. The items disposed of were confirmed to belong to Christie. Based on the witness description, Jason was brought in for questioning. A search of his property led to some human remains in a wood stove in a mobile home he owned. These remains were later identified as belonging to Christie and J.T. Codd. He was arrested just a few days later, on March 15, 2015. Four days after his arrest, the mobile home where the Codd's remains were found caught fire and burned to the ground. In late April 2017, Jason pleaded guilty to murdering both Christie and J.T. Codd. He claimed that he ran over the couple as he was helping them back their car out of a ditch, panicked, and dismembered and burned their bodies. He said he first ran into them by accident as they stood in front of his truck and then, knowing he had hurt them, made the decision to back over them. But investigators discovered Jason had sold some of the Cod's possessions at local pawn shops, using the money to fill up his gas tank and take his wife out to dinner. By making his plea, Jason was able to avoid the death penalty and was sentenced to a maximum of 74.5 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Jason's defense attorneys stated that they believed he was remorseful over his crime, addicted to painkillers, and had been suffering from PTSD after being harassed by police over Zeb Quinn's disappearance. Speaking of Zeb, investigators wondered if they would find anything related to Zeb's case on Jason's property during their initial searches for the CODs. On March 31, 2015, they obtained a search warrant to search Jason's property once again. Those search warrants released Monday tell us what investigators involved in Quinn's case found. Fabric, leather materials, unknown hard fragments, unknown white powder substance, metal and concrete are the listed items seized from Owen's property on that day. That search happened after one of Owen's unnamed relatives led police back to his property and said Owens poured concrete eight feet long and eight feet wide and claimed he was constructing a fish pond sometime after Quinn disappeared in January 2000. That individual also told police it was, quote, at a distance from the residence that would not be convenient to enjoy it from and was not completed and said Owens later covered it with fill dirt. Other things like plastic bags containing an unknown powder substance and burned wood near the concrete slab are also mentioned in the warrant documents. As for what those unknown hard fragments are, Asheville police won't comment any further. In July of 2017, Jason was charged with the first-degree murder of Zeb Quinn. Hey, Robert Jason Owens was the last known person to see Zeb Quinn alive. And just three months after Owens was sentenced to spend the rest of his life in prison for a double murder, 
He's now going to face another trial. Today, a lead investigator with the police department spoke about those recent developments. Investigators wouldn't say what the missing piece was that allowed them to present a case against Owens to the grand jury yesterday, but they did say that they were relieved to have arrest in the case. When local TV station WLOS News 13 reached out to Buncombe County District Attorney Todd Williams in January of 2020, he said the case remains pending trial and hopes to have a trial date set soon. He will not be seeking the death penalty. The mysteries surrounding 18-year-old Zeb Quinn's disappearance from Asheville, North Carolina back in 2000 came to a bittersweet conclusion this past summer. This case has always haunted me, so it was one of the first ones I covered on this podcast in Episode 2. I'm going to share a few segments from that original episode here, and then the update on Zeb Quinn's case will follow. Robert Jason Owens struck a plea deal with prosecutors of Buncombe County on July 25, 2022. In his plea, Owens said he did not kill Zeb, but instead assisted the killer after his death. A Buncombe County Superior Judge accepted the plea deal and sentenced him to 150 to 189 months for the Class C felony. He will serve this 13 to 16 year term at the same time as the life sentence he is currently serving for the murders of Christie and Joseph Codd in 2015. In the hearing, Owens's defense attorneys said that it was his uncle, Walter Gene Owens, who had convinced Jason to lure Zeb into the Pisgah National Forest to meet with a woman Zeb was interested in. But the woman, Misty Taylor, who Zeb's mother mentioned in the episode of the TV show Disappeared, was not at the location. Walter Owens has supposedly been hired by Misty's boyfriend to kill Zeb. In 2017, Owens first shared this complicated story with his attorneys. He said his uncle was the actual killer. But Gene Owens died in 2017 of cardiac arrest later that year. Owens said Zeb had been murdered by his uncle in the forest, and then his uncle cut up and burned the body. But in March of 2015, investigators took a search warrant to Gene Owens's property, where a family member had said he'd seen Jason Owens filling in a fish pond with concrete right around the time Zeb went missing. Scraps of fabric, hard fragments, and leather materials were discovered and collected for evidence. But in a twist, it was Gene Owens who had reported the tip on his own nephew. It seems more than a little convenient that once Gene Owens had passed away, Jason Owens pointed the finger directly at his uncle and attempted to diminish his role in Zeb's murder. Prosecutors agreed to the plea, although they were skeptical of the story. Zeb had originally told his mother he was going to look at a car after his shift ended at a local Walmart on the night of January 2nd, 2000, and that Jason would be going with him. Here is what Assistant District Attorney Jeremy Ingle said about the plea deal. Based on the evidence available, the lack of evidence of motive, cause of death, spoilation of evidence based on a decades-long pause in critical leads in the case, a conviction of first-degree murder at trial, though never a certainty, would present a steep challenge considering all these factors. 
In other words, it seemed that the prosecutors were afraid if they took the case to trial with the evidence, or lack of physical evidence they actually possessed, a jury might find reasonable doubt in the case. This brings us to the conclusion of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd also like to support the show in a small way, you can buy me a coffee over at buymeacoffee.com backslash Renee Robertson. I currently don't receive any compensation for this podcast, so every little bit helps me continue producing new content. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have there at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening.